It is customary for us to refer to the prayer which we find in the Sermon on the Mount and in Luke 11 as the Lord's Prayer. Indeed, as we just prayed, they call that the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, of course, that was the prayer which he gave as a kind of model to his disciples and others to pray. Whereas here in John 17, in John 17, we have what can truly be called our Lord's own prayer. The Lord's own prayer. For here we find him praying, praying his own personal prayer to the Father. The circumstances in which he came to do so are familiar to most of us. After Jesus said these things are a reference to the great and mighty sermon which is recorded in chapters 14, 15 and 16 of John's Gospel. Then, having spoken those words about the Holy Spirit, who is to be given to the believers, our Lord lifted up his eyes to heaven and began to pray. Now, many believe this prayer is the greatest prayer that was ever prayed, that was ever offered on earth, and it followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. Here you have this sermon in those three chapters and then immediately at the close of that sermon our Lord offers up this prayer. It is one of the richest and most sublime statements to be found anywhere even in the scriptures themselves. And there is a sense in which one preaches it with fear and trembling. But I preach on it. And one could preach on it with fear and trembling because we do not want to detract from its greatness and its value. There are others who feel that here we are dealing with something so sacred that the only right thing to do with this prayer is to read it. But yet it seems to me that that would be a mistake. For I would argue that our Lord would never have said that prayer out loud if he had not intended us to hear it and that we should be able to study it and above all, that we should be able to grasp its teaching. Jesus did not merely pray to God. He prayed out loud to God and the disciples heard him. Thus the prayer was recorded, preserved and it seems to me that we have this great illustration of the kindness of our Lord because he allowed his disciples to hear this prayer and in arranging that it should be recorded in this way. As you look through the history of the church, this prayer has been used of the Holy Spirit to sustain people and to support them as they face difficulties in life, and especially when their time has come closer to being with him. The most notable example, perhaps, is that of John Knox, that great leader of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, a mighty man of God, 
It is said that during the last days of his life, realising that he was about to go to his Lord, he asked his wife to read John 17. And it was actually as she was reading this wonderful chapter, he passed from time into eternity. I am calling attention to this prayer today, to this chapter, because I am convinced that half our troubles are due to the fact that we fail to realise what exactly is offered in the scriptures. All of our anxieties and our troubles, all of our uncertainties and so much of our unhappiness in our spiritual lives is to be traced simply to the fact that we do not realise what is provided for us. The Apostle Peter in his second letter, does not hesitate to say that all things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us. In 2 Peter 1.3. And that claim is made constantly in the New Testament letters that there is no conceivable condition which we can ever know. There is no state of the soul which we can enter into that has not already been prepared for. There is teaching concerning it and God's people are meant to be people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. We are meant to know the fullness and the triumph. We are meant to experience a glory even here on earth. But the question that arises is this. Why are we not all therefore glorying and rejoicing in this great salvation? Why is it that so often we are apologetic and give the impression of being defeated? Why are we so often so fearful of the world and of the future, concerned about God's cause and about the church? Why do we frequently, in this morbid concern, resort frantically to things that are unworthy? Can I suggest that the explanation of all these things is our failure to realise what is provided for us, our failure, if you prefer it, to realise our position in Christ and to enter into our inheritance. We are, of course, entirely without excuse because it is all here for us. It is here in this chapter 17. If we had nothing else... But this chapter, we would surely have more than enough to sustain us. Because here, Jesus has given us an insight into our whole position and into everything that is of importance and of value to us while we are in this world of time. We can do nothing better, therefore, than to look at this prayer and to consider what he has to say to us. Here is the position. Jesus was about to leave the disciples. He knew how troubled they were because they had already shown it. And he had started his sermon by saying back in chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Well, they were troubled because he had just told them that he was about to leave them. And that had come as a shattering piece of information. Here they were, they had been following him for three years. They had listened to his teaching. They had seen his miracles. They had come to rely on him and he had given them certain powers. 
If there was a problem or a difficulty, they turned to him at once and put their questions to him. He was always ready to answer. He was very patient. And now, after these wonderful three years, and after all this intimacy and rich fellowship, he tells them that he is about to leave them. They are heartbroken. And he, looking at them, can see that. He reads their minds and understands their spirits. And so he begins his sermon by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. Then he proceeds to unfold for them this wonderful doctrine, this amazing idea that it was better for them that he should go away, that they were going to be in a better, not a worse position, as a result of his going, because he was going to prepare a place for them. Not only that, he was going to send them another comforter who would be in them and he would come and dwell in them by the Holy Spirit. That extraordinary doctrine of the indwelling Christ, of the abiding of the Father and the Son in the very life of the believer. And he goes on to work out and explain that blessed and wonderful doctrine. But he does not stop at that. He now prays for them in order that they may know that when he has left them here on earth, when he has gone to be with the Father, he is still going to go on praying for them. He says that in verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep in your name those whom you have given me. He not only tells them in doctrine and teaching. He wants them to see here that he is committing them to the Father so that they may know that they are never left to themselves but that in all circumstances, in all conditions, he will still be looking after them. He will still be their great intercessor. Indeed, the Father himself is concerned about them. That is his object and purpose in praying this prayer out loud that they may come to know that while he is still with them, the concern that he has about them and will continue to have, even though he is going to be out of their sight. That is the essence of this prayer. And what I want to do now is take a general view of the prayer. But first, let me ask, how often have you read this chapter? How often have you explored its riches? How often have you turned to this chapter in times of distress? Do you understand why John Knox wanted it read to him constantly during his last days? Many of us are guilty of putting this great prayer to one side in a kind of mock humility. Our greatest danger is to read the scriptures too generally instead of looking into the scriptures, listening to every phrase, taking hold of every utterance, asking questions concerning every statement. Because every part of this prayer has a profound and rich meaning if we but take the time to look for them. So let us begin to do that together. Let us today take an overview of this prayer and discover some of the obvious lessons which are here on the surface. The first thing which I think we must learn is how to pray. It is after all a model prayer. 
not in the sense that the so-called Lord's Prayer is a model prayer, but in the sense that this is the way in which our Lord himself prayed. And it is an example or an illustration in practice. We can always be certain that it was the right way to pray because it is the way he prayed. Jesus' whole life, in a sense, was a life of prayer. Though he was the son of God, he spent so much of his time praying and this is his way of praying. Now we all need instruction on this matter. We sometimes think that prayer is simple, but it isn't. The great saints of all the centuries are agreed in saying that one of the most difficult things of all in a believer's life is to learn how to pray. If any Christian has been feeling cast down because he or she has found prayer difficult, they must not be discouraged because it is the common experience of the saints. Prayer is the highest achievement of the saint. And it does not mean saying a prayer. That is a very different thing from praying. It is an easy thing to say or read a prayer, to pray. And here we find our Lord praying. And you will see that there is a great logical sequence in the various petitions. Our Lord does not merely utter a number of petitions at random. There is a definite arrangement. There is a very precise order. So that we have to realise that in prayer, we must exercise a certain amount of discipline. And the first thing always in prayer is to prepare ourselves. The act of preparation, pausing to meditate and consider what we are about to do. We begin to realise the person we are going to address. And that leads to a certain inevitable consequence which will emerge as we analyse this great prayer. John 17, therefore, is a wonderful illustration of the way in which we should pray. But at the same time, it at once leads us into an understanding of who this person, Jesus, really is, who begins to pray. There is no chapter, perhaps, which gives us a greater insight into the person of our blessed Lord himself than this very prayer which we are considering together. He addresses his father. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. He talks about the glory which he had with the father before the foundation of the world. We are at once reminded that we are in the presence of no mere man. We are in the presence of the son of God, the God-man the one who shared the glory of the Father before the foundation of the world, from all eternity. And as we go on with our consideration of this prayer, we shall be led into some of the richest and profoundest doctrines concerning the person and the work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now I would emphasise the point that there is nothing which is so marvellous about Scripture as the way in which it varies its presentation of the truth. And there is a great object, objective, dogmatic pronouncement of the truth concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes you will find that doctrine most perfectly taught in illustration and in practice, in the things which he says about himself, 
or in the things which he assumes and does. And as we consider this prayer, we come face to face with this rich doctrine concerning our blessed Saviour. We need to grasp this truth and realise again that the Son of God came down into this world of time and we are facing here the whole mystery and glory of the incarnation, of the virgin birth, of the humiliation of the Son of God. So we need to grasp that truth, that the Son of God came into this world of time. But the outstanding thing is this, that this person who is praying is equal to the Father. And he prays to the Father. He is equal to the Father. He assumed human nature. He came in the flesh. And here he is himself praying. Indeed, we read elsewhere of him crying out with strong crying and tears unto his Father. If we look, if we look in Hebrews, if we look in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So... We read of Jesus crying in tears to his father. It is a marvellous thing to contemplate that, that God has come down in the flesh in order to rescue and redeem us and opens his heart here to show us his wonderful concern for us and his amazing love with respect to us. And as we go on, we shall enter into this rich doctrine concerning his person. And in a very specific manner we find here in his approach the whole reason why he came into the world. He tells us that he had a certain task laid upon him. He came to do it. And still more glorious, he has done it. Hallelujah. And as we listen to him praying, we have, if we have never seen it before, an insight into his reason for doing it. We begin to see the plan of salvation. And here again is something which we Christians today have ceased to remember. And what a loss it is to us. Our forefathers in the great days of evangelism used to speak about this, the plan of salvation, the scheme of salvation. Some 40 years ago when I was just a young fellow, that's what everybody used to say, explain to us. The plan of salvation, the four points of you know, man's problem, God's love. Jesus' substitution and our being reconciled to him. We hear very little about that today. We are so subjective, we are so interested in particular benefits that not very often do we stand back and view the whole grand sweep of the plan of salvation. But you find it here in this prayer. You find it here as he speaks of that glory in eternity before the foundation of the world. 
you will see Jesus leading us on step by step and then going back into that glory. You cannot listen to this prayer or read it without starting in glory and without ending in glory. And without, in the meantime, having come right down to the very depths of the degradation and the shame of the cross. And then back up, rising again to the risen Lord, the risen Christ. It is all here. The great plan with regard to us, this great purpose of God with respect to certain people whom he has given to the Son as the special object of salvation and all that is to be done for them in order to bring them to that ultimate glory. There is nothing which is more encouraging and more exhilarating than that. There is no greater ground of security in this world of time than to feel that you are a part of the grand plan and the purposes of God. And none of these things are accidental. None of them are fortuitous. It does not matter what may happen in the future. Nothing can disturb his plan. My friends, if you are a Christian, do you know that you were the object of God's interest and God's concern before the foundation of the world? All these things have been worked out in eternity, before time. So we must always remember that nothing can happen in time which will make the slightest difference. That is the argument which we find so constantly in the scriptures. We must never be tired of quoting those great words. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other great creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 8, 38 to 39. And if you have ever been in doubt about that quotation, then read this prayer and read this prayer again and see the security that Christ gives us here. And then we come to look at what he has done for us, what Jesus did for us. I have finished the work which you gave me. This is what he says to his father. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. That's what he says. And as we go from that, we see that he has done certain things for us which no other person could ever do for us and which we could never do for ourselves. He has been telling his disciples about it in the earlier chapters and here he sums it up. What he has done for us is that he has satisfied the law and all its demands. It is amazing to me how, pre how people can look can look at and preach about Christ and his life and his death and never mention the law. And many do. They preach about Christ. They tell you about his wonderful life. They tell you about his perfect life, his death on the cross, and never mention the law. But unless the law of God is satisfied, there is no salvation. The law is opposed to us. It stands there and demands a perfect, absolute obedience. And it threatens us with death if we fail in any one respect. If Christ has not fulfilled the law, we are yet in our sin. We are undone. We are damned and we are lost. 
but he has finished the work. The books of account have been settled and closed. The law has been satisfied. There is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Are you rejoicing in that? What a wonderful thing it is that here, just before he actually goes to the cross, Jesus anticipates it all. He knows what he is going to do and there is no uncertainty about it. Christ says, I have finished the works you gave me to do. It is done, it is complete. We preach, therefore, a completed salvation. There is nothing left for us to do but to receive it. There is nothing that we must add to it. There is no good work or any merit that we must provide. It is all in Christ and Christ alone. And we have a great view of that as we go through this prayer. The next thing, therefore, is a realisation of some of the things that are possible for us even in this world and life. I will remind you again that because of this blessed doctrine, we should be rejoicing. All the fruits of the Spirit should be evident in our lives. A joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance and faith. All these things should be present possessions. The Christian man and woman, according to this doctrine, is not hoping to be saved. He is not constantly dwelling in mysteries. No, he is a man or a woman who rejoices in Christ. In Christ Jesus. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. But are we rejoicing? Do we realise the possibility of rejoicing? If we would only grasp what this prayer is saying and understand its teaching, we shall be able to smile in the face of the world and in the face of hell. Jesus means us to be rejoicing, to know this fullness that God has provided for us in him. So I say, shame, Christian, shame. Yes, Christian brothers and sisters, shame if we are not partaking of his fullness, participating in his fullness and rejoicing in this fullness altogether. Here in this prayer, our Lord allows us to see something of this wonderful possibility and then he shows us the source of security and strength in this world. Can you imagine anything that is more comforting than this? That the Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for you. He said, And I don't pray for these alone, but I pray for them also who shall believe on me through their word. Do you realise that when he was praying this prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for you, was praying for me? Now if we are Christians, we all like to have people praying for us. There are many who are Christians today because somebody prayed for them. A saintly mother or father who prayed for their child throughout all the years of disappointing and went on praying and God heard their prayers and their son or daughter have become Christian. Is there anything that gives greater consolation than to know that people are praying for you? To know that they are going to the God who is the source of all power and asking him to fill you with power. So then, 
If you believe in the prayers of a saintly person, how much more should you believe in the prayer of the Son of God for you? Here he lets us know that he prayed for us and he goes on praying for us. And most wonderful of all, what he does is to put us into the hands of God. He says, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me I have kept, and now I come to you. Father, he says in effect, I hand them back to you, you keep them. If only we could somehow take hold of this wonderful truth that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has put us into the safekeeping of God and that we are therefore in God's safekeeping. Our Lord was never tired of expounding this doctrine. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, what he keeps on saying is, in effect, is foolish people. If only you realised that God is your Father, if only you realised his concern for you, if only you took the example of the birds and the flowers to heart. Look at God's concern for them. How much greater is his concern about you, O you of little faith? And here, in his last prayer, he hands us over to the Father's care and says, Father, keep them. What a wonderfully consoling and comforting thought to know that God the Father is looking down upon us and caring for us and keeping us at this present time. And finally, we are going to learn from this prayer what is our relationship to this world and our business in it. We have not only been saved for our own sakes. We have been saved in order that we may pass on this great news to others. As you have sent me into the world, he says, even so, I have also sent them. Jesus was leaving his disciples in the world with a message. He was sending them to do something as God had sent him to do. So there we have hurriedly looked at some of the things that stand out on the very surface of this prayer. You will find that there are natural divisions. Verses 1 to 5, our Lord prays mainly for himself and about himself. Then from verses 6 to 19, he prays for the disciples in particular, those who are around and about him. And from verses 20 to 26, he prays for the church universal at all times and in all places. There is the logical divisions to which I have just referred. He starts with adoration and worship, his prayer for himself, then he prays for the disciples and then for those who are going to believe through the evangelism of the word. In other words, it is a great prayer that covers the whole of the Christian era and the entire course of the Christian church. Therefore, as we study it, we must observe it very carefully and especially the way our Lord approaches his Father. There are certain things about which we should always be certain, things about which Christ was certain. First, Father, he says. He is not in doubt about God. He addresses God as Father six times. He knows the relationship. He was one with the Father from all eternity. God is his Father in the same way that he is the Father in the Blessed Trinity of Father, Son and Holy Ghost. God is also his Father in the sense that Jesus has become man and so is looking for God 
looking to God as his father. Again, God is now his father because he, the son, is the representative of the many people he has come to save and for whom he has come to die. As he is the firstborn of many, many children, so God is his father in that sense, in the relationship of the children to God, their heavenly father. But notice that he does not just address him as father. In verse 11, he addresses him as holy father. How vital it is to remember that, that God is holy. He is our father who is in heaven, so his name must be hallowed. We must always approach him with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Though our Lord was one with the Father, though nothing had ever come between them, though he never needed to ask for forgiveness of his own sins because he had never sinned, he still addresses God as Holy Father. How often do we forget that even our blessed Saviour addressed God as Holy Lastly, Jesus addresses God as righteous father. O righteous father, he says in verse 25, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. This is a wonderful thought. And when he says this, he is referring to the character of God and to the faithfulness of God. In other words, our Lord is saying in effect, I know that what, I know that what you have promised, you will perform. You have made certain promises to me concerning these people for whom I have done this work. And I know that you will never fail me in any one respect with regard to all those promises. You are a righteous father. If we remember nothing else from this chapter and nothing else from this prayer, God grant that we should learn just that, that when we pray in Jesus Christ's name, we are praying to our Father. Yes, he is the great, almighty, eternal God, but he has become our Father in Christ. He is a holy Father. Nothing unworthy must be mentioned in his presence. We must not present unworthy desires nor selfish thoughts before our holy Father. But thank God, thank God he is a righteous Father. He is faithful and just. And if we truly confess, he forgives us all our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As you come before God, conscious of your sins and maybe doubtful and hesitant, remember this. He is righteous. He has promised forgiveness in Christ. Remember his righteousness and remember that very promise that he has ever given. He will most remember every promise that he has ever, ever given. He will most surely and most certainly fulfill. Oh, how we should thank God that our Lord offered up this prayer and that he said it out loud and that we should thank God that it has been recorded. Let us look into these things. Let us meditate upon them. Is there no wealthier place in scripture than this chapter? Let us enter into it. Let us receive all its riches that we may realise that while we live in this world of time, there are certain things that are absolutes surrounding and enfolding us and that we are in the hands of the one who has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee.